Uh, I'm excited today to introduce to you our speaker. I'm the normal preacher. My name is Colin. Uh, but 15 years ago, I stepped onto a college campus at Abilene Christian University and uh, thought I knew who Jesus was. And I had committed my life to him and was looking to go into ministry. But in a whole new way in my freshman Bible class at ACU, uh, I came to know Jesus uh, through hearing his stories, through the words of Randy Harris. Randy is the uh, spiritual director of uh, the Department of Bible Missions and Ministry at Abilene Christian University. He's been there for over 15 years now and uh, has mentored many young ministers, and I'm one of those who's gotten to enjoy that experience. Randy led a leadership retreat for us this weekend with our elders and staff, and it's a great blessing for us as we uh, discern God's future for us as a congregation together. And I trust his words today will be an encouragement to you wherever you find yourselves, whether it's in a low moment today or it's a, a moment of, uh, of, of great uh, joy and ease in your life. Uh, these are the words of Jesus that he has to share with us. So, Randy, I'd like to ask you to come up now and I'd like to pray over you as you bring uh, the message this morning. Father, I give thanks for Randy. I thank you for his ministry, uh, for the ways that he has spoken your word. And I pray today would be no different, that he would seek that word from you and you would deliver it through him, God, that he would be a vessel. So I pray that you'd pour through him the, the gift of preaching today, so that Christ would be formed in our hearts, that we might see more clearly the kingdom of God as it's been preached through Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I begin with an episode of the Brady Bunch, whose contribution to American culture is about equal to that of the cowbell to the symphony orchestra. Um, Marsha's getting ready to be in a play, Romeo and Juliet. She's going to play Juliet. She's practicing her lines. She bobbles a line, and Mom corrects her. And her response is, I just don't feel it that way. And Mom points out that maybe she couldn't improve on Shakespeare's uh, way, which is a pretty good introduction to what I'm going to do. I'm I'm going to quote the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, But I'm going to do it the way that I think Jesus would do it if he might were talking to us right here and right now. I think he had preached the same sermon. I think it probably sound a little different. Uh, For one thing, when Jesus preached the sermon, the people he primarily preached to, you know, I know we read a lot in the Bible about Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and all of that, but most of the people that Jesus preached to were what were called people of the land. They were farmers, they were desperately poor, they were overtaxed, they lived in an occupied land, they were desperately poor, and that's the way they were going to die. There was no way out. And that's not exactly who we are. I think Jesus would say the same things, but he might say them in a little different way. And uh, you're welcome to uh, uh, follow along with me if you want to. It might be more frustrating uh, to do it that way, to try to follow along as I'm um, quoting the sermon. And I will remind you, it grew out of an oral culture. It was meant to be heard, not read primarily. Um, I had the opportunity a few years ago to to go to Nepal, and I thought I was going to speak to a bunch of church leaders. It turns out I was going to speak to a bunch of young women who had been rescued out of sexual uh, trafficking, uh, who were kind of new to the Bible, and were for the most part illiterate. 
And I didn't, you know, we were out in the middle of nowhere. I didn't have any technology, nothing to help. And so I asked my host, okay, what am I, what do I do here? And he said, this is still an oral culture. Can you tell the stories? And I said, I come from Arkansas. I was meant to tell the story. (laughs) And so for two days, I never read a text, never threw up a PowerPoint. I told stories about Jesus while they sat and listened. I just told one story after another. It was a great teaching experience, and that's what I intend to do now. Uh, I will have to make some interpretive choices as I'm preaching the sermon, and I will not stop in the middle of the sermon to defend my choices, because that would then put the emphasis on that rather than the sermon itself, and there's plenty of time to talk about those places where there are some interpretive questions that probably would have to be uh, answered. I do intend not to create a sermon. I intend to preach one that's already been preached. Um, I, I want to be as faithful as I can to what Jesus was saying. And uh, I, did I make you all memorize a sermon on the Mount back in 15 years ago? Uh, I, I make all of my ministry majors memorize the Sermon on the Mount, all three chapters, uh, 5, 6, and 7, because I figure whatever else they know, they ought to know what Jesus said. Uh, and, and Wes, you probably had to learn the Sermon on the Mount. Why don't you come up here and do this with me? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure he's got it down uh, still. Uh, so uh, at, at any rate, um, if I skip a portion, it's because I'm either watching my time or I'm aged and I'm working without a net here and uh, have forgotten it. Um, and so you know how it is to stand around waiting for yourself to think of something. It's better to just move on. But uh, I, I will be skimming through a couple of parts just because I'm watching my time. So Jesus shows up and this is the sermon he preaches. Um, you Americans have a strange way of evaluating the blessing of God. You assume that because people are rich or healthy or successful that they have God's blessing. But I want to tell you the blessing of God goes to places that you can't imagine. First, foremost, always, God blesses losers. That's what he does. And some of you today have have lost loved ones recently and you're still feeling the pain. And I want to assure you that the blessing of God always sits in the house of mourning. And in a room, we always notice the noisiest people, but that quiet person sitting on the side who often has much to say but is too controlled to say it, God's blessing rests on them. And we assume God's blessing rests on the religious leader who has all the answers, who's got it all straightened out, who can tell you everything about the will of God. But the blessing of God is on those who know there's more to know about God and are hungering and thirsting to know what that next thing is. Their life is always a journey, not a destination. And I want you to know in this world of anger, God's blessing rests on those who extend mercy to one another. And in a world where young people's biggest concern is not to make sure they miss out on anything, God's blessing rests on those who know life is not about doing everything. Life is about 
relentlessly pursuing the couple of things that are worth pursuing. God's blessing rests on those who make peace, if we could actually find anybody. And I want you to know that as you are uh, the followers of Jesus, you are occasionally going to run into some rough waters with regard to the world and the culture of, of which you're a part. It's always been this way. And if you do not, in some time in your life, experience some degree of persecution, you probably aren't doing this right. Because the message that I have is radically subversive to the culture of which we find a part. It is threatening, and there will be times when the people of God will be persecuted. You are salt and light in the world. And I know the doctors have got going on this thing, but I want to tell you, salt's a good thing. Salt, it can... It can make things better and light. I mean, anybody who's been in a pitch black room with a coffee table looking for their shin, oh, blessings are the light. Light up the whole room, reveal the obstacles, and you're salt and light in the world, and that means I need you in the world. Salt only does its work if you use it. Light only does its work when it's shining in the darkness. I need you in the world because you are salt and light. And I know some of you may have grown up with uh, kind of uh, a bad impression of, of rules, but I want you to know that the rules that God has given are good, and I did not come to obliterate the law. I came to fulfill it. And when you understand what the law is really about, when you understand what those rules are supposed to do, they do not oppress you. They set you free to be the people of God. Well, like, let me give you some examples. The law says you should not murder. And by the way, I feel like that's excellent advice. But I got to tell you, what lies below murder is anger. How are you doing with your anger? And when we get angry, what we do is insult. And then after we insult, we demean. And the next thing you know, we have violence. It is the way of the world. We get angry, we insult, we demean, there's violence. And it could be there's nothing you can do about that moment of anger. At least I'm not very optimistic about it at the moment. But everything depends on what happens in that second moment. When you feel that flare of anger, what I want to tell you to do is this. Rather than insult and demean, immediately move towards reconciliation. And this isn't so important that you should do it when you're just standing on the road. And it is so important that it is more important than worship. What you're doing now pales in comparison to the importance of reconciliation. And if you're on your way to church and you realize you got relationships that are out of whack, you need to attend to those relationships, and there'll be plenty of time for worship after that. The law says you shouldn't commit adultery, and I think that's excellent advice. Uh, But we all know that what lies underneath adultery is lust. 
It's not just a matter of action. It's a matter of disposition of heart. And lust has always been a problem in the world. But boy, you moderns, you have made it an art form. You've built a whole culture around lust. Uh, the great thing, for those of you who are my age or older, you know, we, we, we had pornography too. It's just we had to work at it. Now it's anonymous and available anytime. And how are our young people going to survive in this kind of world? But I want to tell you, lust is one of those things that when you feed it, it doesn't get full. It gets hungrier. And you've got to be radical in your approach. You've got to, you've got to call, cut off all the means that it comes into. You have to be relentless in rooting out lust because it'll take over. And the law says, if you're going to get a divorce, you need, to, uh, you need to do the paperwork right. But I just want to remind you that when divorce happens, almost everybody gets hit by the shrapnel. And I don't want to pile on top of those of you who've gone through the pain of divorce. The last thing you need is somebody adding to your pain. I just want to say this to all of you. We need to cultivate the practice of keeping our promises. Because promises don't mean very much in our world anymore. And when you make a promise, you need to keep it. It's covenant. And for most of us, the first thing that means is we need to quit making so many promises. We make promises we can't keep. And I want to give you the simple word. It's been said that, uh, you know, if you're going to say something really important, then you need to swear by something heavy enough to give your word validity. But what I want to say to you is this. You should be people of such deep truthfulness that people always assume you're telling the truth. And that's extremely hard because we've gotten used to manipulating each other and finessing each other and working around each other. And we have uh, almost forgotten how to just simply, simply be truthful to one another. We need to become simple. And I'm not giving you an excuse to be rude or mean because the truth that you tell needs to come from hearts full of love. But we need to be able to look at each other and tell the truth. I got to tell you this, you live in a world that is a strike back world. And I want to tell you that when somebody irritates or offends you and you try to get even and the mud starts slinging, that everybody gets hit by the mud. And what we need to do is instead of responding in kind, is think of creative ways to diffuse the anger rather than adding to it. Somebody slaps you on one cheek, says, whoo, whoo, hit me again, hit me again, harder. One of those Roman soldiers makes you carry their gear for a mile, say, I've enjoyed carrying your gear so much. Do you think I can carry it another mile for you? Or when somebody says, I'm going to sue you and take away your coat, and says, well, while you're at it, just take all my clothes, and I'll stand here naked in front of you, and then we'll see how we feel about it. It's kind of a playful jokesterism that says, I'm not going to respond to insult with insult. My first reaction is always going to be to diffuse. And I have a hard word for you today. I want you to love your enemies. 
Because we live in a world that's divided everybody else up into us and them. And we love the people of our own family or tribe or nation or race. But when you love like that, you are exactly like every pagan in the world. Everybody does that. What sets you apart as my disciples is when you love people who don't love you back. And when your first reaction is to pray for your enemies, and I don't mean praying for their demise, that doesn't count. Because that's the way God loves. He sends sunshine and rain on the good and the bad, and the generosity of God must become your generosity. If there is any hope for the kingdom of God, it'll be because you learn to love your enemies. So uh, here you are at church, and we're all seeing each other. And there's always this great temptation to do our uh, our religious acts uh, to be seen by people. When we give, we want people to make sure we know how much we're giving, and we want them to think of us as generous people. And and when we pray, especially in public, we want to make sure it's a good prayer because if it's not a good prayer, it won't take. It should be an eloquent prayer. It used to be a prayer where if I quote Scripture, I make sure I get the passage right because God might have forgotten where he put it. And when I fast, when I fast, boy, I'm suffering, so I want to make sure you know how I'm suffering. What joy is fasting if you don't know I'm doing it? And there's this great temptation in all of that to to do what we do to be seen by other people. So I want you to cultivate the discipline of secrecy. Give to people without even the person you're giving to knowing you're giving. God sees. And when you pray, quit piling up words. and Instead, keep it simple. Pray like this. Oh, God, whose name is so holy it can't be uttered, but who still lets me call him Father. I pray that you will fully reign on earth and in my heart as you already reign in heaven. I pray you'll give me enough to eat today, and I'll count on you to do that again tomorrow. I'll pray that you won't lead me into situations that are beyond my spiritual capacity and and that you'll hold me close to your side so the evil one can't touch touch me. And I, I pray that you will forgive me and I will experience your forgiveness so deeply that I will be able to forgive others. Because you need to know this. God's ability to forgive in the world is closely tied to your ability to practice forgiveness. And uh, I need to talk to you a little bit about stuff. Boy, do you all have a lot of stuff. You have to clean your stuff. You have to protect your stuff. And lo and behold, what a thing it is when you have to move somewhere. All of a sudden you find all the stuff you needed is not quite so necessary. Stuff, stuff, 
everywhere, and none of that stuff is going to last. Bugs are going to eat it. It's going to rust. It's going to burn up, or worse comes to worse, you'll die, and your poor descendants will have to figure out what to do with it. Instead, invest yourself in something that's eternal. This is all about the eyes. If you got bad eyes, hmm, you know what bad eyes are? Bad eyes are say, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. It's the covetous eye. It's the eye that keeps wandering around and wants everything it sees. And it doesn't help that you live in a world where there are people thinking right now how to get you to want things you don't even know exist. Amazon. I go into Amazon to buy a book I need, and it turns out there are three others just like it that I also desperately need. I don't know what it feels, what it's like to have a company that knows me better than I know myself. And who lives on feeding my desires, I want, I want, I want. Stuff can be a good servant, but it's a terrible master. And you cannot serve two masters. You'll wind up either loving God or loving money. You can't do both. And now I'm going to tell you that's going to be the hardest command that I'm going to give other than the one to love your enemies. You ready for this one? Don't worry. There, did that fix it for you? Oh, you don't have to worry. God's a generous giver. He takes care of the birds who fly around, and he clothes the grass of the field with beautiful flowers, even though it's just all going to burn up in the West Texas heat. If he cares about birds and flowers, then he's probably going to care about you too. So quit being obsessed by what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. God knows you need that. But instead, seek first the kingdom of God. He'll take care of that other stuff. There are two kinds of sins in the world. There's the sort of bad sin and there's the really bad sin. The difference is the sort of bad sin are the ones I do. The really bad sins are the ones that you do. And I have developed a very keen eye for your sins. And since I am a generous and caring brother, I will tell you about those frequently. But it's because I care about you. And you know, when God invented the eye, you got to have some questions about that, right? The eye is always looking out, so I can always see your sin, but it's pretty hard for me to turn that eye back on the inside and see my own. So I become very judgmental. Okay, so I have a word on that for you. Stop it. It's killing. Quit pointing out all the sawdust in your brother's eye because can't you see you've got a plank in your own? Turn that critical eye inward. And uh, don't... uh, 
Don't throw your pearls to swine. Don't give what's holy to dogs. You know, if I knew, if I'd known that one was going to be so misunderstood, I would have said it more clearly. Everybody knows that swine and dogs in these passages are not animals, they're people. Wonder what people they are. Well, okay, I'll be a little clearer about it. I was talking about the Roman Empire. Because when you have a country that's totally dominated by another one, you, you tend to, uh, because you depend on it, you, you tend to trust that government. So let me say it as straightforwardly as I can. It doesn't matter what government you have, you shouldn't trust it because eventually it'll turn on you. And it doesn't matter which administration we're talking about. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the Roman Empire. It doesn't talk about, matter if we're talking about the British Empire. It doesn't, talk about, doesn't matter if we're talking about the American democracy. You shouldn't trust the government. You should trust God. Because God is like the Father who gives good gifts. And even though we're not great people, we know how to give good gifts. Oh, when our... Children ask for food. We do our best to give it to them. And God's like that. We trust God. He'll give us what we need. And as we experience trust in God, God's generosity becomes our generosity, and and we begin to treat other people the way we want to be treated what God does. Uh, there are lots of ways that the culture creates to, uh, to destroy our world, but there's only a narrow way, the way of Jesus Christ that leads to life. And I'm asking you to say no to all of those alternative salvations and turn to the only salvation that there is, the narrow way of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people out there who talk in the name of God, who say things about Jesus, who do not have your best interest at heart. They look like little woolly lambs, but what they really are is wolves, and you need to watch out for them because there are a lot of false teachers in the world. And I want to give you a little hint about them. You judge those teachers primarily by the kind of fruit that is produced. And it doesn't matter what is done in the name of God, if it creates hatred, if it creates division, if it creates oppression, it is false because God doesn't do that. He produces people that look like the values of the Sermon on the Mount, and by their fruit, you will know them. But there's actually even this worst part. It's not just that there are false teachers who are out there trying to deceive us. Sometimes we deceive ourselves. We engage in all of this religious activity, but somehow we've dried up inside, and we don't really have a relationship with God. We just have a lot of stuff we're doing. 
And then we get to the end and we come to God and say, look at all these great things. I spoke in your name. I did these wonderful works in your name. And he says, you know, I don't think I know you. I'm not sure I recognize you. So you cultivate this deep relationship with God out of which the good works flow. So you don't wake up one day and find out you don't know the one that you call Lord and Master. Okay. The one who hears these sayings of mine and puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who builds a house on a rock. And even when the winds blow through like they do here, they don't shake the house because it's built on a rock. It's got a firm foundation. The person who hears these sayings of mine does not put them into practice. It's like the foolish man who builds his house on the beach in the middle of Hurricane Alley. Winds come and blow the place away because it doesn't have any solid foundation. I want to make sure you hear what I'm saying. The wise one is the one who hears these sayings of mine and puts them into practice. My emphasis is not whether you understand this sermon. The emphasis is on whether you do it or not. Because you got to hear this. Until you try to do it, you don't know if any of it is true. It's all theory. And the great problem with the Sermon on the Mount is not that we haven't understood it. The problem is we haven't tried very hard to do it. So, we don't know whether it's really true or not. You only find its truth in the doing. At least I think Jesus would say something like that. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, glory and majesty, dominion and power, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore, world without end. Amen. Go in peace.